Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy. Developing and bringing a therapeutic or a rare disease to market is an incredibly difficult task. There are very high upfront costs on the promise of something that is curative, but sometimes without the evidence that payers would like to see. It's an additional hurdle that sponsors have to contend with to get the market access for patients. But on top of that, there are changing regulations and factors that sponsors should be aware of happening in the next few years that will impact the data packages required for market access. Today, I'm speaking with Sangeeta Budya, VP and Global Head of Pricing and Market Access, and Wyatt Got Better, Worldwide Head of Access Consulting, both of ParXL, who will walk us through those changes and what sponsors should be thinking about and doing now to prepare. Welcome, Sangeeta and Wyatt. Can you tell us what the current overview is for bringing a rare disease therapeutic to market? I'm happy to sort of take a first step at at some of the historic issues. So rare diseases were, for the most part, overlooked by our industry, pharma, biotech. Much of the reason, I think, was lack of scientific understanding, lack of appreciation of the unmet needs, um, which can often be, of course, quite severe of patient groups and many rare diseases are in pediatric or adolescent populations. But at a more structural level, the, the entire industry had tended to really focus on chronic diseases, things like um, CNS, psychiatric, cardiovascular disease, where you could develop a drug and sell it to very large populations. And then there's really been a shift recognizing that that model, um, which had suffered a bit due to sort of many targets being found, many drugs going generic, also required a lot of marketing spend, reps going into doctor's offices, consumer advertising. And I think between a shift in business model and just some great scientific discovery and enablement through legislation to promote more development of rare disease through tax credits and regulation that accelerated development and and provided FDA support, at least of course in the US, we saw a real shift over the years in not just companies like Genzyme, but the entire industry and really much of the biotech sector focusing on rare disease. We can develop drugs for smaller populations with smaller trials that are hopefully more nimble and bring those drugs to market at, honestly, a significantly high price, but reflecting the value that they provide to this patient group. On the other side of this equation, however, is that by definition, rare disease, which is 200,000 or less in the US and 10,000 or less in Europe and other areas, really means that you're talking about small populations, um, some real challenges in identifying and recruiting patients, largely because they haven't been treated or properly diagnosed before. And even when you go through this incredibly exciting but arduous journey, an expensive journey for the biotech to bring a drug to market, now you're faced with finding reasonable economic returns. How do you price? And rare disease therapies historically have have been expensive for the value they provide, but also sort of for the cost of this journey and that revenues are generally going to be realized on a small group of patients. And this creates the payer issue, the access challenges that, that we see in our work, which is how does a company price for value, plan for hopefully a fair return for their investment and their many years of research, 
and work with payers and governments to make sure, most importantly, that there's appropriate access for these patients and their families. Yeah, and I wanted to sort of pull on that that thread a little bit around, you know, how do you ensure that you're going to get return on investments? How do you ensure that you're going to get access to patients from payers? You know, what we have when it comes to our manufacturers or, or our clients developing these drugs is that it's it's a rare disease. It's a rare disease with a huge unmet need. However, what we find is that there's usually no precedent. There's no good data out there. So payers are having to make a, a significant decision on investment um, for which they have little historic experience in, but the evidence base that manufacturers are coming to market with can be challenging. It's a, it's a data set in a small patient population. There will be limited real-world evidence. And that what that means is that that statistical variance or that statistical uncertainty gets exacerbated for payers when they are looking at the data set or the evidence in which to make that reimbursement decision. So as more technologies come to market, as we are using more innovative techniques, that decision-making process for, for payers becomes more and more uncertain. And so therefore, you know, as manufacturers are coming to market with their data packages, what they need to be mindful of is that level of uncertainty. And so therefore, you know, outside of their traditional data collection methodologies, you know, RCTs, for example, single arm studies, for example, what data and what evidence could they be collecting in order to reassure payers that the product that they're bringing to market is going to do what clinical trials or the evidence says it's going to do within each healthcare system. And just to expand on that, what are sponsors who want to bring rare disease therapeutics to market doing to show value and to address that uncertainty? So when we engage with our clients, we really ask them to think with the end in mind, right? And start thinking as early as possible. So uh, alongside some of the therapy prioritization decisions, maybe when you're planning your clinical trial program, think about that commercial plan very, very early on and think about what that payer hurdle is going to be alongside that regulatory hurdle. And that way you you're sort of planning your data collection, your evidence generation, but also your, you know, your, your engagement with prescribers, with clinicians and patient groups very early on so that you're establishing what the real unmet need is, right? What are patients facing on a day-to-day -day basis that makes the drug that you're developing addressing their immediate, not only clinical needs, but but their, their holistic view, what are their unmet needs in order to ensure that the product is actually going to present value for, for money. Are you seeing biotechs thinking about market access enough when they're planning out collecting data and their data packages? So I think the ones that have previously had an approval and have learned from this 
will invest early and think about evidence and think about patient advocacy, think about registries and patient finding. Um, but most importantly, all of the definitions of value holistically that Sangeeta spoke to. But the biotech community is not is not monolithic. It's 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 of course very large, very young companies who are really doing their many of whom are happy to get into the clinic, do their first in man study, advance that drug. And their focus, understandably, is primarily on validating the science, moving their drug through clinical trials. And then if they find themselves in the fortunate position of being in a pivotal study or a late stage study, and hopefully with an accelerated pathway or a breakthrough designation, that they could be on market very quickly. Now they may scramble to say, do we have the right endpoints? Do we have the right evidence? And one, of course, could have a regulatory approval in the US or Europe or really most markets but not really be set for payment, right? And this is a shame for all of those years of investment. Patients want to have access to the therapy. The patent clock is ticking and you can't realize revenues and get that drug most importantly into the hands of, of the people who need it. But not all biotechs, of course, have this experience. Some will develop their commercial team later rather than sooner. I think in the current economic environment that we're in, where um, we're really not seeing IPOs and public offerings, and it's harder for biotechs to raise new rounds of money, they're really going to think about how they sort of spare their funds. And of course, you want to continue to move that clinical program forward, right? That's what will excite the company. That's what will ex excite investors. But it really shouldn't be a choice. You should also be pursuing these commercial activities, planning for your market access. And most importantly, the right time to do this is, is at the time you're designing that protocol for the pivotal study, because you don't want to find yourself in a situation of having to gather evidence later post-approval or peri-approval. For a young biotech who may not have launched a product yet, can you speak to what the data needed is for market access? The evidence requirements for approval by regulatory bodies like the MEA, like the FDA, it's, it's different uh, when it comes to the evidence that's required for payers, um, but also for, for market access as well. Um, you know, the MEA, the FDA, it's about that risk-benefit ratio, right? It's about clinical efficacy versus safety um, as it's presented in the clinical trial, whereas payers are looking for that economic value alongside that clinical value but over a much longer time horizon, right? Your manufacturers are presenting the, presenting one, two, three-year data, but what payers want to understand is what is the clinical benefit and therefore the economic benefit, economic impact over the lifetime of a, of a patient. Now, you know, um, if we look at you know, non-small cell lung cancer, or even the different subgroups within that, right? Non-small cell lung cancer, very large disease, but you have some genetic uh, mutations that lend itself to a smaller disease, but it's in a much older population, right? So you can have EGFR positive non-small cell lung cancer, for example, potentially a rare disease, 
but in a much older population, you're looking at an age of around 70, 70 years, 75 years. And that's in stark, stark contrast to some of these rare diseases that we're seeing that biotechs are investing in, primarily in pediatrics. How do you show that your treatment for children is going to have a benefit over 50 years, 70 years, in the absence of, of clinical trial. So the evidence that's required for regulatory approval or the benchmark for, for, for evidence is, is different when it comes to payers and, and access and when they come to make those, those funding decisions. And I would add, I think where we're seeing a, a lot of activity and certainly a lot of excitement and, and cause for optimism are in gene therapies and CAR-Ts, which have the promise of being durable therapies in that, as Sankita is saying, they can really cure the problem, if you will, right, offer a lifetime of benefit. And this is in contrast, I think, to really where the rare disease industry started, if we think about enzyme replacement therapies, absolutely saved lives, prolonged lives, reduced disability, but came at a very, very high annual cost. And this was almost um, an extension of that former pharma model that I mentioned, because they were chronic in nature. You administered them every year. It was a small population. It was essential. And really, each patient was viewed as, as an annuity. So companies like Genzyme, Alexion really thrived in this model. But now with the promise of gene therapy and CAR-T that you can have a single therapy administration and hopefully a patient can live symptom-free and disease-free for the most part, we now have to, as Sanhita said, provide payers, if not with a full data set, with the optimism that at this higher cost, we are obviating disease in that single administration, but we don't have the long-term data. And moreover, um, for some of these patients, it's not clear yet that these therapies can be supplemented with traditional therapies. So you also sort of have to think about what if it doesn't work, what options do we have? But more importantly, how do we price, how do we gain access on the promise of long-term value when we don't fully have the long-term data? What? changing or new regulations should sponsors be aware of and how would that impact their activities moving forward? So our team was just looking at some data around um, accelerated approvals in the U.S. and the expedited pathways that the FDA provides. And, and I think there's already, from a U.S. perspective, um, a lot of support that the FDA will provide to rare disease or diseases that don't historically have a very good standard of care for patients. And that will allow, at times, a drug to be approved on very limited data, um, even sometimes before the full trial has been completed, if an interim evaluation is, is very powerful and, and very compelling. Um, and Hopefully with this, we see patient approval, right? You still have to negotiate this with health plans. You still have to determine price. But one of the things that our, our team is seeing is that when you receive these accelerated approvals, oftentimes you need to do additional work. You need to confirm these results long-term. And I think the companies, the biotechs and pharma want to do this to generate evidence to continue to have a voice in the marketplace, something to tell the medical and scientific community that these therapies are working, they are doing what we said they would. But the FDA doesn't always come back and say, show us that long-term data that, that was sort of based on 
uh, that was sort of a condition for your approval. So I think from a regulatory point of view, at least in the U.S., the mechanisms are there to um, support development and support bringing the therapies to market. But again, in the U.S., we have this fragmentation where the FDA's approval, their, their blessing, is really a step toward reimbursement, but doesn't in any way guarantee it. Versus in Europe, I think we do have sort of that closer alignment that Sankita was speaking to. Yeah, and I guess the other significant change that we'll see in Europe is the adoption of a EU-wide HTA framework. So at the moment, when uh, companies are launching drugs in Europe, they're having to navigate and deal with HTA frameworks or reimbursement frameworks across all of the different countries in, in Europe. And that can be you know, a bit of a minefield, um, but also you have to have a proper or, or a well thought out commercialization or launch strategy. Um, come 2025, 2028, um, we will have an EU wide HTA framework. So, what that means is that um, if you are looking to launch in Europe, um, you will now have to go through a European level clinical assessment. And what that means is that uh, presumably, or, or hopefully, um, the, the 27 EU member states will ratify this mandate by the EU or the EC, the European Commission. But it brings a level of uncertainty as well. You know, you'll go through this European-wide clinical assessment, but what that does that mean in terms of, of implementation in those individual countries? You know, a country like Germany, you may still need to go through a different or an adaptation of that assessment to ensure that you are meeting the, the requirements uh, within the German healthcare system, similarly in France or even in, you know, the Nordic region, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, for example, these are countries that have got a well-established, well-oiled framework for making these decisions. So it might mean that manufacturers now have a two-step process, two hurdles to go through in order to gain access or, or payer approvals in in those countries. The EU-wide joint clinical assessment was there to make that process slimlined, but I think there are challenges still exist in those individual countries that are due to differences in the healthcare system, which means that I think those hurdles will remain and something that companies need to be mindful, particularly for these high cost drugs in very small populations. I think they're going to go through um, a considerable amount of, of scrutiny in the future. And in the US, of course, we don't have a mandatory health technology assessment process, as Sangeet has been describing. And, but increasingly through ICER, the independent body, these reviews are being conducted and it's almost sort of a check on the industry to say, are we providing strong clinical outcomes? And then with this at the manufacturer's proposed price, is there value? And ICER through their work, which is independent, does provide an influence and cover, if you will, for the many payers that we have in the U.S. to say, is it priced fairly? Should this be covered? And then, of course, we have individual negotiations 
between so many different payers and the manufacturer or sponsor. And one topic we haven't touched on yet is the idea of risk sharing agreements or guarantees around outcomes. Do we pay for performance? Does the drug deliver as promised? If not, can payments be reduced? Can payments be refunded? Which is something that there hasn't been a tremendous amount of transparency because these agreements are generally private, but that's sort of been the payer response around the world in many instances to this sort of uncertainty around the promise of value and the promise of favorable outcomes. Why do you think now is the right time to have this conversation? For me, I think it's a confluence of incredible excitement through the scientific advances, the number of companies pursuing CAR-T and gene therapy as the technologies for manufacturing, discovery, administration of drug are improving. Um, We're seeing many, many companies getting into the space, at least until this year, a lot of money flooding into the space to support them. So we're seeing the promise of many therapies coming to market. Again, this is rare disease we've been discussing. So to treat patients who previously weren't treated, which is an absolutely wonderful thing. And I think we're all very proud to play a small role in this. But on the other hand, we're looking at with this level of discovery and investment, treating people who before maybe weren't treated. That means new expense to the healthcare system, which is already struggling under very, very high expenses historically, coming from medical innovation, longevity, improved healthcare, but also at this moment in time, so many economies and health systems specifically are still responding to the dollars that have been spent around the pandemic, A few months ago, I don't think we were all concerned about the um, inflation and the potential of recession that we are today. And that means monies that are going into health systems, notably ones that are nationalized, will be more limited and more subject to scrutiny. So again, we sort of have this historic tension, but I think maybe a a true moment where the tension is rising between um, the promise of new therapies for all these patients against finite budgets to pay for the things that we had already. And to layer on top of that, you know, we've got constraints in in budgets, but our industry is hugely innovative at the moment, right? We're looking at bringing new therapies, new modes of actions, you know, with with the um, COVID vaccines, you know, we were able to accelerate mRNA technologies, for example. And we're also able to look at enhancing these clinical trials. You know, historically, we've gone down the double-blinded comparative RCTs with some of the technology uh, when it comes to accessing data capturing um, healthcare data, we're able to bring innovative trial designs that payers and and regulators really need to scrutinize in order to understand how that correlates to what they've historically seen. So I think, you know, as um, biotechs or as companies are taking advantage of these new technologies that are going to accelerate their clinical trials and, and bring these treatments to patients' 
quicker and more effective treatments to patients earlier, we need to take the payer along that journey with us. You know, payers are stuck in their RCT frameworks, wanting that long-term data. We need to take them along that, that innovative journey with us. So engaging not only with the patients and the clinicians, you know, engage with payers, understand their concerns, bring them along in your innovation journey. And how is ParXL helping to ensure that sponsors are prepared for market access? So I think one of the really exciting elements of, of our work and, and truly a benefit for our sponsors is that we have our access team. As Sankita described, we have been advocates for a very long time for thinking about evidence early, thinking about patient outcomes beyond the regulatory requirements and framework, and making sure that those are included in your protocol. We also have at our disposal groups of, of colleagues that we work very closely with access to real-world data who do advanced studies around real-world evidence and analytics. We have our patient innovation center that can assist in finding these patient insights and drawing them out and really bringing light to the patient experience and patient journey. And with this, these sort of clinical needs, but also social, societal, and economic needs that help inform that story that ultimately um, are part of sort of defining success for access. Yeah, and I'm going to sort of lift the lid on the box a little bit, you know, I mean, you know, not only do we have a team cross-functional team that is that we're able to bring together but we actually sit next to each other in offices right we're able to have those those corridor conversations um, at a senior level we see what's going on in our clinical trials what our RWE team are doing and we ask those questions we get involved so you know when when clients come to Parexcel you know we say we can offer you an RWE access HEOR solution those teams are sitting next to each other, problem solving, you know, whiteboarding these problems out on a day-to-day -day basis in our offices, right? We, we sitting, sit next to each other and, and, and we problem solve with each other. My next question I think is a two-part. So first, how should sponsors be thinking about changing to demonstrate value in their data packages? And second, what actions would you recommend to take first? One theme that we've, you know, been coming back to in this conversation, you know, beyond just the excitement of the science and innovation is the deep understanding and engagement of the patient community, right? So almost by definition, in rare disease, we haven't seen many patients. We don't fully know their experience, or if we have that knowledge, that knowledge isn't widely disseminated across the medical community, the scientific community, and then importantly, the regulatory and payer community. So I think it's really to engage very early in creating this deeper understanding of the patient experience, bringing that understanding into your protocol and into your evidence plan, again, going beyond the regulatory requirements to say what other clinical economic familial benefits are really being demonstrated by this therapy. But we have the tools now and in a much broader range of therapies to address different diseases that present and manifest themselves in lots of different ways. And this requires new measures, new understanding, new methods to kind of bring this knowledge to the payers and to the medical community. 
what would be your parting advice for our listeners? Plan early. <laughs> you know, we know that it's challenging, right? To think of all the parameters when you're a small biotech, you know, when, when, when you're, you know, looking for, for investment, right? The next milestone, how do I get investment? Um, but by thinking about the payer requirements, by planning for the payer requirements, by communicating what those issues and challenges are and what risk mitigation strategies you've got in place, you're adding value to your product, to your development plan that will resonate with these investors. And it also ensures that you know, you're making your development plan and your evidence generation strategy, your commercial strategy, as bulletproof as you can get it, right? And we're not saying, you know, plan early and then it's done. It has to be an evolving roadmap. It has to be continually validated. It has to be continually tested. So, you know, just an agile and flexible evidence generation plan at the start understanding where you can pivot or whether those pivotal decision points are will set you up for success. And I think focusing on risk is maybe a a great place to end this as biotechs really have to think about very efficient use of their cash. There's no guarantee that there's going to be a big next round or an IPO, as we said earlier. And I think levels of risk really characterize the sort of maturation of companies in this industry. So first, scientific risk. Can we demonstrate it in the lab or animals? And if we get past that, now it's clinical and regulatory risk. Can we demonstrate that it's working in our human subjects, that we can pass regulatory hurdles? But then the the third risk, and of course, where we focus, is commercial risk. Can we get paid for it? Can the people who need the drug get access to it? at a fair payment. And it's this third risk that investors focus on just as much as the others, maybe more so when you get to that inflection point of demonstrating clinical effect that that the industry and our sponsors really, really need to focus on. We need to de-risk at all of these levels. And as Sangeeta said, to plan early to do that. Thank you so much to you both for sharing your expertise on market access in the rare disease space, particularly around how sponsors should be preparing for the future. Again, my guests today were Sangeeta Budya, VP and Global Head of Pricing and Market Access, and Wyatt Gottbetter, Worldwide Head of Access Consulting of ParXL. For more information on PharmaTalk Radio podcasts, you can visit theconferenceforum.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Danny. Thank you.